ask if you will open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And um, at the conclusion of our lesson tonight, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8, which I know you're already familiar with, but I want to tie it in in a different kind of way this evening. Normally on the first Sunday night of the month, we have questions and answers, but for the first time in history that since I've been doing this, I didn't have any questions. So if I don't have any questions, I don't have any answers. And so that's not what we're, that's, we're not going to be doing that tonight. But as I was thinking about uh, what to do tonight, I thought about the fact that next Sunday is Mother's Day, and um, I wanted to share with you something that I had in my files from a long, long, long time ago. And this might be on the internet, I don't know, I didn't look to see, but it was something that was printed out that I had, and I wanted to share it with you this evening. This is an actual um, thing that was found in a 1950s home economics textbook that was intended for high school girls, and the purpose was then to teach them how to prepare for married life, and um, there's ten things here. Ten very important things that, um, that women need to know uh, as far as being the proper wife. And this was what was being taught to our young ladies in the 1950s. Number one, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal on time. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospects of a good meal are part of a warm welcome needed. Number two, prepare yourself. After you have the dinner prepared, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh-looking. He has been with a lot of work-weary people. Be a, be a little happy and a little more interesting. His boring day may need a lift. Number three, clear away clutter. Make one last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives, gathering up school books, toys, papers, etc. Then run a dust cloth over the tables. Your husband will feel he has reached a haven of rest and order, and it will give you a lift too. Number four, prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash the children's hands and faces if they are small, comb their hair, and if necessary, change their clothes. They are little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. Number five, minimize the noise. At the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise, such as the washer, washer, the dryer, or vacuum. Try to encourage the children to be quiet. Greet him with a warm smile and be glad to see him. Number six, some don'ts. Don't greet him with problems. Don't greet him with complaints. Don't complain if he's late for dinner. Count this as minor compared with what he might have gone through during his work day. Make him comfortable, number seven. Have him lean back in a comfortable chair or suggest he lay down in the bedroom. Have a cool or warm drink ready for him. 
arranged his pillow and offered to take off his shoes. Speak in a low, soft, and soothing and pleasant voice. Allow him to relax and unwind. Number eight, listen to him. He may have a dozen things, you may have a dozen things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Number nine, make the evening his. Never complain if he does not take you out to dinner or to some other place of entertainment. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his need to be at home and relax. Number 10, and it simply says, the goal. The goal, try to make your home a place of peace and order where your husband can relax. And ladies, if you'd like to put this on your refrigerator, I can make copies of this, and you'll have it right there if you want it, so you'll know what to do. Um, But that's hard to believe, but that's really from a 1950s home economic textbook. And I think we can say that perhaps times have changed a little since then. And in response to that, somebody has come up with an updated version for the woman who's now living in the 2000s. Ten things, and you'll see how things have changed. Number one was have your dinner, have dinner ready. Make reservations ahead of time. If your day becomes too hectic, just leave him a voicemail message regarding where you would like to eat and at what time. This lets him know that your day has been awful and gives him an opportunity to change your mood. Number two, prepare yourself. A quick stop at the Clinique counter on the way home will do wonders for your outlook and will keep you from becoming irritated every time he opens his mouth. Don't forget to use his credit card. Number three, clear away the clutter. Call the housekeeper and tell her that any miscellaneous items left on the floor by the children can be placed in the Goodwill box in the garage. Number four, prepare the children. Send the children to their rooms to watch television or play Nintendo. After all, both of them are from his previous marriage. Number five, minimize the noise. If you happen to be home when he arrives, when he arrives, be in the bathroom with the door locked. Some don'ts. Number six, don't greet him with problems and complaints. Let him speak first, and then your complaints will get more attention and remain fresh in his mind throughout dinner. Don't complain if he's late for dinner. Just simply remind him that the leftovers are in the fridge and you have left the dishes for him to do. Number seven, make him comfortable. Tell him where he can find a blanket if he's cold. This will show that you really care. Number eight, listen to him, but don't ever let him get the last word. Number nine, make the evening his. Never complain if he does not take you out to dinner or some other place of entertainment. You're going to go out with friends anyway, or maybe you'll go shopping and once again use his credit card. Familiarize him with the phrase, girls' night out. Number 10, the goal. Try to keep things pleasant and without reminding him that you make more money than he does. Now, those were kind of silly. The first one, of course, was real, but yet in this day and age it sounds very silly. But as we think about how things have changed Yet, in a lot of ways, they haven't changed. 
Because if you think about it, what's actually going on here is a form of selfishness. One is the idea that the man gets to have everything. It's always about him. And then the one that was, of course, tongue-in-cheek was all about the woman. She gets to have everything. The first thing was the man had to have everything his way. And the second one, it was the girl had to have everything her way. It was all either all about him or it was all about her. But also there's something positive I think we can learn when we think about uh, the 1950s one. Um, and don't take this the wrong way, but the attitude proposed during the 50s was to do everything you can to make your husband happy. Now, honestly, is there anything wrong with that? Is there, Karen? Is there anything wrong with that? No. But let's change it to this. Let's do everything you can to make your spouse happy. In other words, we should try to do everything we can to make our husbands happy, but we should try to do everything we can to make our wives happy. The 1990s or or the 2001 rebuttal uh, was more about what can you do to make me happy, which, of course, is the opposite of what... um, we're supposed to be doing in a marriage relationship. Uh, biggest problem with the one from the 1950s is the, the sacrifice is very, very lopsided. The passage that Michael read for us a few moments ago from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 reminds us that the husband is supposed to love your wife even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Uh, the Bible commands sacrifice on the part of the husband in the same way that Christ sacrificed himself for the church. Now, earlier in that same passage, Paul points out how that women need to submit to their husbands, and that's an important part of what the Scripture teaches. But when you add those two Scriptures together, what you get is a mutual agreement that we're going to try to do the best we can to take care of one another and make one another happy. Uh, The 1950s book was uh, seemed very antiquated and seemed like, husband was getting all the attention, but there's nothing wrong with the husband getting attention, and there's nothing wrong with the wife getting attention, vice versa. But just imagine, though, what if both husbands and wives put in as much effort into pleasing one another as that textbook suggested? Just think if, if, if we put forth the same effort that that book suggested in this day and age when it comes to our spouses when trying to make our wife happy or trying to make our husband happy, uh, we would find out that marriages would be a whole lot more pleasant and life and and the result would be a whole lot more pleasant. And also we'd be doing what God wants us to do when it comes to uh, the marriage relationship. Too many times in society today and even uh, in marriages but also in other walks of life, basically the attitude is, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? We even see this in the church. Some reason, One of the reasons why people don't attend church the way that they should or don't get the things out of worship like they should, as we mentioned last Sunday, is it's all about me. What have you done for me lately? But the attitude that we should have as Christians, not only as, Christians, as Christian brothers and sisters, not only as Christian parents and children, not only as husbands and wives, And in our relationship even with other people, it should be, what can I do for you? And that's the point that the Apostle Paul was making in Philippians chapter 2. 
We see that beautiful passage where it talks about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. One of the, one of the most beautiful emphasis of what he has done for us. But we forget about the fact of the context of what he was talking about. He was talking about relationships with other people. He wasn't so much talking about what Jesus did, though this is a beautiful synopsis of what Jesus did. He was trying to get people to understand both before this passage and after this section of Scripture that we need to be people who get along with people and try to find ways to always do something for them and see their point of view and help them in any way that they, we can. In fact, verse 2 says in chapter 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And then booked in on the other th- side of this, he says in verse 12, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to do will and to do his good pleasure. Verse 14 says, Do all things without murmuring and disputing. In other words, the reason why he puts this passage in here and books in it, books in it the way that he does is because he wants all of us to try to look out for the other person. Find out what we can do for that person. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be selfish. Don't be all about me, but about the other person. And so then when we actually read verses 3 through 8, especially, the emphasis is not so much on the idea that Jesus sacrificed himself, though that emphasis is there. But the emphasis is on the idea that Jesus did this unselfishly without being um, told to do it by us, without us having that prospect of earning it in any way. He did it completely out of love, compassion, and unselfishness for us. So listen to what he says now. Verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself, themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In other words, the next time we ask the question, what have you done for me lately? We need to think about the fact that Jesus Christ did this for us, and he didn't ask for anything in return other than us to turn around and love him. When we ask ourselves about what, how we should treat other people, we should think about the fact that we should try to find ways that we can sacrificially love people, even when it's not convenient, even when it's not easy, because Jesus Christ unselfishly put himself on the cross in the form of a man so that you and I can have redemption. Some things to consider this evening, and as we move forward to Mother's Day next Sunday, we may have some more things to say about mothers, but I thought that thought this would be something that I could share with you, and it was appropriate this evening, so I hope that we all learn something from it. If you have a need this evening, something that we can help you with as a brother or a sister in Christ, we certainly want to, as together we stand and sing the invitation song.